One of the most unpleasant, disquieting aspects of affliction for the believer is this. When afflictions come, and particularly when afflictions stay, you begin to see things in yourself that you thought were long ago dead. I think one of the things that he's doing is he's teaching our heart to long for that presence. He's teaching our fallen heart to appreciate that and to yearn for it by withdrawing it from us. Now, why does God have to do that? Isn't that kind of sad? Why can't God just convert us and redeem us and then for the rest of our life we appreciate and love His presence and never take it for granted. Why can't God do that? Because we're fallen and because we're still sinful. And so sadly God must do things like this because of our fallen nature that still resides within us. So He must from time to time take the sweetness of His presence and mute it to cause the true believer to then cry out and say, God, like the psalm that we read earlier, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your presence from me. Do do you ever pray like that? Do you ever feel that in your prayers? God, just don't withdraw from me. God, just don't leave me. I know that your word says you will never leave me and never forsake me, but I can't feel you right now. I can't sense you. I don't sense that presence like I want to. God, don't take that from me. If you've ever felt that and if you've ever prayed that, then that's what God wanted to generate within your heart. He wants your heart to yearn for His presence because your heart is still fallen and still prone to falling back into dullness and not appreciating or not loving His presence. And so sometimes He will do that. As Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, He says that He prays that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know the blessings that are ours in Christ. Or as He says to the Philippians, that I may know you in the power of your resurrection. Psalm 34 and verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And when the child of God is brokenhearted, that the presence, the sweet presence of God just seems out of their reach. The glorious spiritual truth behind that is that that's when God is the closest. Jesus was on the mountain. The disciples were in the boat. But all the waves on the Sea of Galilee wasn't going to keep Him away from them. So ironically, even though His physical presence was disconnected from them, He was never away from them. So when the child of God is brokenhearted, that the sweetness of God's fellowship seems out of their grasp, that's when He's closest. The second thing that I think that God does through these times is I think that God wants the believer to retain a sense of what He redeemed us out of. I think that God wants the believer to to retain some, some sort of grasp on the darkness of a lost condition, the bleakness, the hopelessness of a lost condition. Paul says this in the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. 
He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember that. Don't forget that, Ephesians. Don't forget what it was like to be separated from Christ. So many of us, myself included, might have come to know Christ at a time in which, you know, it's hard for me to remember what I was like when I was seven. I know I was the perfect child, but it's hard to remember back that far. So even though that we may have known Christ for decades and decades and decades, God still wants us to have a sense of what He's redeemed us out of, of what it's like to not have His fellowship at all because we're separated from Him. And so God may use that in times in your life to just withdraw, to to have His presence in a muted sort of a fashion to cause your heart to cry out, God, don't leave me, because that is not any life. A life without you is no life at all. So I think that that's probably the first disturbing, unsettling, disquieting thing that we see. You probably see it in your own life. When you have experienced affliction, and particularly when that affliction lasted, you probably have in your heart also gone to that same place. God, why do you not care? Do you not see? Why have you withdrawn? Why are you hiding yourself from me? Why do you seem so distant? Why do you seem so disconnected? I think that's what the the disciples are experiencing too. But the second thing that we see that, if anything, is even more disturbing is this. We see that in this episode that the intense afflictions that come upon the disciples have the effect of bringing to the surface sins that they probably thought were long ago dead. So think about their reaction to Jesus. Jesus comes to them on the water, and we we remember what happens. They think, first of all, he's a ghost, and they're terrified. And then they find out he's not a ghost, that he's really Jesus, and they're more terrified. So they're compounding upon itself. There's this first initial reaction that's just simply a reaction of pure superstition, that somehow there is this ghost, this person come back from the dead, which, by the way, as believers in Jesus Christ, what do we have 1,000% certainty of? No one ever comes back from the dead. Never. That, as believers in Jesus Christ, upon the authority of God's Word, I can say to you emphatically, nobody ever comes back from the dead. It doesn't work that way. So this idea that there's this ghost, that somehow this spirit being used to be a person and now he's walking on the... That's just superstition or this idea that maybe it's some sort of a demon that's coming to get us. You see, the disciples lived in a superstitious world that, by the way, was no more superstitious than ours. We somehow think that because we're more sophisticated today and we walk around with with smartphones and we've got Google and everything, that we're less superstitious. We are still, as a society, just as superstitious as people have ever been. But their superstition was out front. It was visible. It was open. And their superstition that was somehow down deep within their thoughts, it comes to rise. They're in the middle of the storm. They have been rowing and rowing. Their arms are burning. They're at the end of themselves. They're exhausted. They are having thoughts that Jesus doesn't care for them, that Jesus has forgotten them. And then out of nowhere comes this crazy superstition. There's a ghost on the water. Perhaps that was a pagan way of thinking that these disciples had thought was long ago dead in them. That they don't think like this anymore. 
But somehow this storm in the middle of the night, they're so weary, they're so tired, they're so afraid. All of a sudden now this old way of thinking that they thought sure was dead, now it comes back. Let me see if I can illustrate this for us. You ever experience the morning after a storm? And I don't mean the kind of storm like we had yesterday. I mean like the morning after a hurricane. You ever experienced that? What do you see everywhere on the morning after a hurricane? Trash. Isn't that just the, the ugly reality? A storm like that brings trash out of nowhere. Or perhaps a better illustration. Let me go with this one. A better illustration. I can think back to when I was a little kid. And which is only like 12 years ago. But I can think back to when I was a little kid. And one of the things I liked to do when I was a kid, I would get these mason jars in the summer. I'd get these mason jars and I'd go find a big mud puddle or go down to the pond and I'd find where the tadpoles were. And I'd take that mason jar and I'd scoop up a bunch of pond water with tadpoles in it. And I'd take that back and I'd put it in my room because then I had pet tadpoles <coughs> as if a tadpole could ever be a pet. So I'd have these, this mason jar of pond water with these tadpoles in it. And when I'd put the jar on my shelf, the jar was, the water in the jar was what? Brown. With tadpoles all swimming around in it. But then as the, the jar sat there on my dresser for two or three days, I would go and I'd look and the tadpoles would be sitting on the bottom. And what color would the water be? Clear. And then I'd take the jar and then maybe the tadpoles would swim around or I'd shake it a little bit. And then up would come all this sediment that because the water was calm, had settled to the bottom. And fellow believer in Christ, that's your heart. When the water is calm, the sediment of your remaining sin settles to the bottom and the water of your heart looks clear. And it's not until you take that jar and shake it that you begin to see there's still a lot of sediment left in this water. You see, the storm created nothing. The storm created nothing in the disciples' heart. It simply shook up what was already in there, but had settled down to the bottom. Because in the calmness of the day that preceded the storm, there was no superstition there. <laughs> Can you imagine the disciples on the day of feeding? I mean, there's no unbelief. There's no spiritual dullness. Jesus is feeding the crowd. They're not thinking, Jesus, are you sure you're not a ghost? Are you real? Are you sure you're not a demon? There's no lack of belief because everything is wonderful. The people are sitting on the grass. Jesus is feeding us. He's given us this great teaching. The water of our life is calm. And then along comes the storm. And wait a minute. I didn't even think I believed in ghosts anymore. I didn't even think that I believed in that stuff anymore. I thought I believed in Jesus. I thought I believed that this man was the Messiah. Now, all of a sudden, what's coming out of my mouth is that this man's a ghost. 
Do you see how the storms of your life do the same thing? They will shake up from the bottom of your life, that sediment of old sin that you haven't thought about for years, that you thought you were long since over. And the storm will come along and it just has a way of shaking things up so that all those old sins are dredged up again. You want a biblical example of this? Let's take a look at Mary. Not the mother of Jesus, but you remember Mary, the sister of Lazarus. In Luke chapter 10, the water of Mary's life is calm. Because in Luke chapter 10, we have that quaint little story of Jesus coming to visit And then there's Martha, who's so diligent to prepare for the food and everything. And she comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you tell Mary to help me? And Jesus says, tut, 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 nope, nope. She has chosen the better. Because we're told that she would sit at Jesus' feet and soak up his teaching. And Jesus said, this will not be taken from her because she has chosen the better. That's Luke 10. When the water of her life is nice and calm. But then if we flip over to John 11... In John 11, there comes a storm. And the name of that storm is her brother Lazarus, who just died. And Jesus now comes to town. By the way, after waiting until he was dead. Kind of like Jesus praying on the mountain, waiting until the disciples have reached the end of themselves. Jesus also. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Let's go to him. Let's wait. Let's wait. One day, two days, three days, four days. Now it's time to go. So then Jesus comes. And I don't know if you've ever caught this part of the story here. In John chapter 11, when Jesus comes now to the house of the now dead Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But did you catch this part of the story? But Mary remained seated in the house. Let me interpret that for you. Mary was mad. Mary was angry at Jesus. Mary was disappointed in Jesus because Jesus let her brother die. Now, this is the same Mary that sat at his feet and soaked up his teaching. This is the same Mary that we have as this mental picture of the ideal disciple sitting at Jesus' feet. And yet the storm of her brother's death comes along and it stirs up within her feelings toward Jesus that she never would have told you in Luke chapter 10 she had. In Luke chapter 10, she would have disavowed any feelings of hostility towards Jesus. But then the storm comes, and then out of nowhere, something comes up out of the bottom of her heart that she had even forgotten, didn't even know was there. And it's an animosity toward a Messiah who didn't come through for her in the specific way that she thought he should have. That's how the storm of her life can shake up that sediment of old sin. And the same thing is true in all of our lives. Have you ever noticed that to be true? One of the most unpleasant, disquieting aspects of affliction for the believer is this. When afflictions come, and particularly when afflictions stay, you begin to see things in yourself 
that you thought were long ago dead. And I think that that is the most distressing part of afflictions for the believer. Yes, afflictions are unpleasant. I mean, that's the very definition of an affliction is it's unpleasant. It can be painful, physically, emotionally painful. It can be financially painful. Certainly afflictions are not supposed to be fun. But I think that the most unpleasant part of afflictions for the true believer is afflictions show you the ugliest part of yourself. Because afflictions are stirring up that stuff, that grime off the bottom of your heart that you had convinced yourself, I'm done with that. And here they come out of nowhere. Attitudes come out of nowhere. Things come out of your mouth that you thought didn't come out of your mouth anymore. Or temptations now are enticing to you that were not enticing before. The temptation, you know, I could just lie and I could make this easier on myself. I could just take this thing and make it easier on myself. I could just not report that to the boss and I could make this easier on myself. And then that temptation is real. It's tangible. Maybe you even indulge in it and you say, what am I doing? I thought that that part of me was long ago dead. And I think that's the most distressing part of afflictions for the believer is because it shows you how much you still need Christ. It shows you how desperately you still need Him. It shows you how sinful your heart still remains. It shows you what many of us would say in the midst of afflictions, and maybe you've been there too. I'm such a terrible person. I'm such a terrible Christian. I can't believe that I'm still tempted in these ways. This is the experience, I think, of every Christian. Which is why I think that the, this hiding of the face, this is of God. I think this is why He does it. Because He uses this to stir up those things within your heart to remind you, first of all, how much you still need Him. But secondly, of what He has placed His love upon. You know, it's easy to begin convincing ourselves when that water's nice and calm and all the ugly sediments on the bottom. It's easy to start thinking, when Jesus loved me, He didn't love somebody all that bad. I mean, look how clear my water is. But He sees to the bottom. And when He stirs up that water in your life, and you look at that and you say, this is awful. I thought that I had made more progress in my spiritual journey than this. Then what the believer must do is they must remind themselves, Jesus got in the boat. Yahweh got in the boat. The great I am didn't come up to the boat and say, you foolish disciples, how could you think that I forgot you. I'm going back. He came to them and got in the boat with them. And that is the ultimate assurance for the believer. That the Scriptures teach us that knowing everything about us, knowing every sediment in our heart, He loved us. And He died for us. As Paul will say at the end of Romans chapter 8, knowing this about us and then giving Himself for us, giving His Son for us, would He now forsake us? 